Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Stoltz. On this week's episode, I sit down with Washington Library fellow Mark Linder to discuss his recent research project uh, on the Conway Cabal, and as well as his book that he's just written, uh, Fatal Sunday, The Battle of Monmouth. But first, a friendly reminder, uh, there are still single tickets available to the Michelle Smith's Lecture Series. Uh, the next talk at the library is on May 8th, and it will feature author John Kukla discussing Patrick Henry, Champion of Liberty. Uh, we also have, uh, if you do not follow us yet on social media, we'd appreciate it if you do so. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GWBooks and on Facebook at The Washington Library. Okay, Mark, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, how has your fellowship been going so far? Well, Joe, it's been a, a wonderful time. It's been productive. I, I've been blessed with wonderful fellow fellows, and the staff here is first class. Uh, I've found an awful lot of material I did not expect to find, which was uh, really helpful. Uh, helpful and not helpful. I, I was fairly well into my project, and I found a lot of material which has made me reconsider some of the conclusions I'd tentatively come to. And uh, certainly it's added detail, a rich detail, to uh, the narrative I'm trying to put together. So it's been a wonderful fellowship. Great. That's what we like to hear. Uh, now, what, uh, what for our listeners, what is your project? I'm looking at an episode from late 1777 to early 1778, which historians have called the Conway Cabal. It was never, uh, no one ever called it that uh, during the uh, War for Independence, but the Cabal was a supposed plot or a conspiracy, whatever word you want to use, a, a cabal, to um, either remove Washington from his position as commander-in-chief, probably in favor of General Horatio Gates, or at least uh, take the authority for running the war effort away from Washington and, and lodge that in Gates. Either way, it would have made the title of commander-in-chief pretty hollow. I, I don't know. I mean, it's an academic question. Would Washington have remained in office uh, voluntarily had uh, he lost his command authority? Uh, who knows? But either way, uh, there has been a debate over the years as to whether or not there was a serious threat to Washington's command. Uh, it, was, uh, it was received wisdom down to 1940. Most uh, historians believed that Washington was indeed under, well, we know he was under heavy fire, but uh, did that fire constitute a genuine threat? And it was uh, what historians believed until 1940 when a, a gentleman named Bernard Nolenberg wrote a reassessment of Washington's command and concluded that the, uh, the cabal was more myth than reality, that while there was criticism, it did not constitute a genuine threat. And since then, most historians uh, have not looked closely at the cabal. They've more or less accepted Nolenberg's uh, conclusions. Not all, but uh, of late, Nolenberg's conclusions have, in fact, come under uh, renewed scrutiny. You've had a number of historians within the last 10 years or so who have given more credence to the existence of the cabal, and I'm one of them. So that's why I'm here uh, looking at the cabal, uh, and I think uh, making a case that uh, the threat to Washington was genuine and quite severe. Fascinating. Uh, now, how did you come to this project? 
one project leads to another. Uh, I got interested in this particular uh, aspect of the War for Independence uh, coming out of a, a book I did with uh, Gary Wheeler Stone. It was called Fatal Sunday, George Washington, the Monmouth Campaign, and the Politics of Battle. Uh, my thrust was the politics following the Monmouth Campaign, which uh, Gary and I argued put Washington over the top as the iconic figure in the revolution. Before that, uh, we argue that Washington really was under threat. We've got a chapter in the book that deals with the Conway Cabal, among other issues uh, surrounding Washington's command. And the more I looked at the sources we used for that chapter, the more I became convinced that the Cabal needed a longer, harder look. Uh, new sources have uh, become available. There's all sorts of uh, major uh, papers projects, the George Washington Papers, the Nathaniel Green Papers, the Papers of Alexander Hamilton, um, the Letters of Delegates to Congress. Uh, all of this material was either unavailable to earlier studies of the cabal or scattered in so many different locations that uh, a, a serious research project would have been very, very difficult. I've been blessed. Uh, it's all published, and uh, there are manuscript collections now that are open here at the, uh, the Smith Library or in the Library of Congress, which uh, may or may not have been available in 1940, but are better cataloged right now and more accessible than they've ever been, and I've been able to take advantage of that. Great. Um, now let's, because uh, I have you here in the chair, and I and I uh, I, I actually met my wife, my uh, my wife on the Monmouth battlefield uh, at a reenactment. So you know, we'll always have the plains of central New Jersey. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, I want to talk about the the Monmouth book a bit. You know, what uh, what what surprised you most? Uh, when you were sort of researching the Battle of Monmouth. And let me even start that with, because uh, this is a debate we get into quite a bit with the Army Museum down the road, who won the battle? Who won the Battle of Monmouth? Well, well, actually, you and your wife did, if you met there. <laughs> good for you. But uh, the Battle of Monmouth uh, was a tactical draw. Washington and his Continental Army looked better in the field than perhaps they'd ever looked. They had the benefit of... Uh, it's difficult to say they had the benefit of the Valley Forge winter, given the tribulations they suffered. But if Valley Forge was an epic of survival, it was also a story of revival. The Army was reorganized under Washington and his senior officers. It was retrained under Steuben. It was re-equipped thanks to the arrival of, of uh, large amounts of, of French munitions and other aid. And it was... Uh, well, replenished through recruitment operations, including some states resorting to conscription, drafting uh, uh, militiamen for nine months or, or so duty in the Continental Line. So the, the, the army that marched out of Valley Forge toward Monmouth was in much better shape in, in all respects than the army that had marched into Valley Forge. And these men were also veterans. By this time, most of them had been at war for at least a couple of years. And they were facing a British army, also composed of veterans, and uh, a new British commander, Sir Henry Clinton, who was very angry with his situation. He had been ordered to give up Philadelphia, get his army back to New York City in order to uh, have most of his troops redeployed to other fronts. The British had made a rather cold-blooded decision that with the French now entering the war, with the Spanish looking like they were going to come in in the following year, 1779, of course they did, 
um, they knew they couldn't fight everywhere. And since uh, a military decision in the northern colonies looked increasingly unlikely, they told Clinton to pull out. Uh, he was angry. I mean, who wants to be given command of an army and your first orders are pull out? Yeah. Uh, he was itching for a fight. And so uh, there is the story of his retreat across New Jersey. It was slow. He had a wagon train that, that sometimes stretched out over 10 miles. And why did he take such a long time? Bad roads, horrible weather. The, well, I mean, the weather you, was in the nineties. New Jersey Turnpike, you always well, know why it takes. New Jersey Turnpike, you know what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> if they'd had to travel the Turnpike, he never would have got yeah. back to New York. And there, and clouds of of New Jersey mosquitoes, the yeah. state bird, and it was uh, it it was miserable for the for the, for the troops. But uh, he was slow because he was hoping Washington would come after him and he could, if not land a knockout blow against the Continental Army, at least, at least hit part of it hard and redeem his own personal honor and the honor of British arms. And Clinton was very much concerned about that. I mean, to, to pull out uh, had been a body blow to the morale of much of the British officer corps. But when they finally met, uh, it was never a general engagement. It was a, it was a battle fought uh, mostly by detachments around the village of uh, Monmouth Courthouse, also being called Freehold at the time. Uh, battle lasted most of the day in, in one part or another. It included uh, a dramatic confrontation between uh, Washington and his second-in-command, uh, General Charles Lee. Uh, it included, uh, perhaps the, until the siege of Yorktown, the longest sustained artillery barrage engagement, both sides firing at each other, the Royal Artillery taking on the Continental Artillery, and these guys, uh, you can go to the battlefield today and see their artillery positions. They were firing line of sight, and so this was pretty dramatic. Didn't do much damage, by the way, but it was a pyrotechnic display. It looked great. <laughs> that impressed everybody who was involved. But at the end of the day, uh, Washington had launched some limited counterattacks from, from very strong defensive positions. Clinton just made up his mind that, uh, con considering the fact that uh, he had checked uh, the uh, American advances on his positions, uh, his job was to pull out, get his army back to New York, and if Washington was not going to offer a showdown fight, and Washington wasn't going to mm -hmm. do that, uh, his orders were to get out, and that's what he did. He got out. He didn't even lose a single wagon of a wagon train of over a thousand wagons, as you mentioned, stretched out for miles. Um, so he went back to New York, claiming mission accomplished. Uh, Washington wrote back to Philadelphia to the Continental Congress saying, mission accomplished. And he did. Uh, he did accomplish his mission. He had wanted to land a, a uh, at least a partial blow against the, uh, the retreating uh, British column, but he also needed a political victory. He needed to reassure patriots after a very, very rough time uh, in over late 1777, early 1778, and uh, he had a rough time with the cabal. Those who really thought he was not up to the job and took steps to limit his ability to do that job. Mm -hmm. uh, Monmouth was the battle that showed that he had an army that could fight showed that he was a general who could command that army, and Washington looked good that day. I mean, it wasn't all propaganda. I mean, it was uh, to trumpet Monmouth as a great American victory was propaganda. It was great political finesse, uh, spin we would call it today. He was blessed with uh, very, very good junior staff officers who saw to that. John Lawrence, whose father was uh, at the time president of the Continental Congress, Alexander Hamilton, who had a magic pen, 
they knew how to conduct a, a, a public relations campaign, and they did on behalf of their general. But Washington, by all accounts, by all witnesses, um, performed uh, very, very capably that day, inspiring the troops, uh, bringing up the army piecemeal and getting it in position where it could hold off the British, um, dealing with uh, with Charles Lee in the vanguard. And Lee, by the way, fought a very good battle, uh, but his personal animosities with, with Washington were just... Uh, you, you cannot have an army, particularly an army in the midst of a revolution where the two senior officers don't get along. One of them had to go, and it wasn't going to be George Washington. It was going to be Charles Lee. So it was a, all around, Monmouth was a pretty dramatic operation, and it had uh, profound results. I mean, it put Washington in the clear. After Monmouth, he was never seriously challenged again for the rest of the uh, War for Independence. Yeah, and let's so let's use that as a nice segue to get you know back to that challenge. Um, you know, we we a lot of us probably complain at times about you know uh, office politics and politics in the workplace, but uh, those politics don't generally involve trying to you know liberate an entire nation uh, or or win a revolution. Um, so what, what were the what were the politics going on? Within the army, well, political historians love this stuff because it was it was it was pretty some pretty nasty backbiting stuff. But we've got to uh, get over the Conway cabal as a contest between good guys and bad guys. Mm -hmm. The critics in Congress and among other senior patriots uh, were not after Washington on a personal basis. They were patriots, yeah. and they number some of the earliest and and most dedicated individuals uh, who who lined up for the cause of independence. Uh, we're talking criticisms on the part of John and Samuel Adams. Uh, James Lovell of Massachusetts was a true ideologue. I mean, he, he, uh, he disagreed with Washington's uh, goal to build a regular, professional American Continental Army. Uh, he believed in militia. Uh, he thought Continental Army was, uh, would be a classic standing army, and, and so in the guise of Republican ideology, uh, a danger to, to American liberty. But uh, while he was criticizing Washington, his son was uh, an officer in the, in the Massachusetts line and fought at Monmouth. Mm -hmm. uh, Samuel Adams' uh, son was an Army doctor who was right behind the lines at Monmouth, I mean, uh, getting as close as he possibly could to bring aid to the troops. Abraham Clark of New Jersey, another zealous Republican and, and no fan of Washington's leadership. Uh, both of his sons were British prisoners of war and, and subjected to some of the, the horrendous treatment aboard the, the prison hulks in, in New York Harbor. These men didn't want to lose the war. Uh, they were just afraid that Washington was losing the war. So uh, what you had was men uh, who were skeptical of the American war effort and men who were very much aware of uh, the military history of North America. And that really meant military history of the Seven Years' War and what had happened to a succession of British commanders-in-chief who had produced subpar or even disastrous military results. The British relieved them one after another until they finally got a war winner in Jeffrey Amherst. And they even called him back to, uh, and criticized him when uh, you know, blaming him for not pacifying the frontier and producing other political results they didn't like. So the practice had been to, to get rid of officers who didn't win. And uh, could the Patriots relieve a commander-in-chief? Well, they did. 
we forget there were two commanders-in-chief. There was George Washington, commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, and Sheikh Hopkins, commander-in-chief of the Continental Navy. Uh, Hopkins did not have anywhere near Washington's political acumen, and uh, he did not have anywhere near Washington's uh, record in arms. They relieved him. They got rid of him. And they, um, they brought other Continental generals down as well. But Washington was smarter than most. Um, what had happened, and I'm piecing this together, and it, it's part of the changes I've decided to make uh, as a result of my fellowship here at, at Mount Vernon. Uh, what you began to get was the Board of War moving into areas in which Congress had not intended it to move. And what do I mean by that? I'm sure that's your next question over and over at you. Uh, the Board of War was uh, established in 1776 by Congress to take care of running the war effort. Now, Congress was doing everything, diplomacy, Indian relations, uh, managing the war effort, financing uh, the war. It, it couldn't give the war effort the time it deserves. So they formed a committee called the Board of War, composed of congressional delegates. Well, these delegates also had those same responsibilities. So a Board of War composed just of congressional delegates uh, could devote more of its time to the war effort, but not enough. So in 1777, they devised a Board of War that did not include congressional delegates. And the first iteration of the reform it did, but then they just changed it so that it was non-delegates composed of individuals who had experience in military administration. Turn it over to them. Uh, they would manage uh, British prisoners of war, mundane record-keeping, correspondence with the states on military matters, all the stuff, uh, the minutia of managing a war, and keep it off of Congress's back. Mm -hmm. They never intended the Board of War to become an operational outfit. They did not intend it to get involved in, in, in strategic policy decisions. They did not intend it to get in, involved with the, with the training of the Army or even the supply of the Army. There, was a, a, there were established departments in the Army to handle that kind of thing under Washington's guidance or, or his direct command. What happened was that uh, with the influence of a gentleman named Thomas Mifflin, who had been a, a major general, an, an early Pennsylvania patriot, a major general under Washington, for a while a quartermaster general of the Army, and a confidant of Washington, uh, they had fallen out. As Nathaniel Greene's influence with Washington rose in almost uh, statistical proportion, uh, Mifflin's declined. Uh, Mifflin... Uh, became lax in his responsibilities as quartermaster general. His faith in Washington plummeted after the defeats of 1777. Um, he preferred Horatio Gates. And uh, in late November of 1777, he wrote a letter to Gates uh, saying flat out, you've got to come to Philadelphia, you've, you've got to take over. Uh, the war down here is a disaster. Uh, this and Chris Gates has been successful. Up Gates in now has been yeah. successful at Saratoga, and Gates is the hero of the day. Now people debate how much credit should Gates receive for the victory at Saratoga. Uh, it's an academic debate. Mm -hmm. Gates was the man on the spot, and Gates was the man that public opinion rallied around, 
And in contrast to the defeats of Washington and, and Brandywine in September, uh, Paoli, uh, uh, Germantown in October, and in November, the, the loss of, of the Delaware River forts that controlled river access to Philadelphia, uh, morale in the middle theater plummeted. Plenty of people wanted Gates to come south and run the war effort. Gates did come south. Uh, he was invited, uh, mostly engineered through the political influence of, of Thomas Mifflin, to become president of the Board of War, technically Washington's superior. So now you've got... Even though he's lower ranking. Uh, lower ranking yeah. as a major general, but... As president of the Board of War, he was allowed to keep his rank as Major General. Uh, Thomas Mifflin, also on the Board of War, also with his rank of Major General. And they were situated in York with the exiled Congress. They'd left Philadelphia when the British invaded. So they're right there in Congress. Uh, Gates still wearing his uniform. They had the ear of Congress and the Board of War. Uh, today we would call it mission creep. Uh, in management parlance today, they call it scope creep. But when an organization moves beyond the function for which it had been created, I mean, it can be a good thing or a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But in this case, uh, the Board of War embarked upon what I think we can loosely call as an administrative coup. They, uh, perhaps that's a strong term. Uh, but no, no, it isn't. Yeah. And, you know, and in the book, I'm going to use that yeah. term. Uh, what they began to do was move in on first, uh, the first gambit was to appoint an inspector general for the army. Washington had wanted an inspector general uh, based upon one of his councils of war. Uh, the army suggested it. We want an officer, a staff officer under Washington to take charge of retraining the army under a uniform set of standards. So it could uh, have uniform tactical maneuvers, a uniform drill. Um, the Army wanted this. What they did not want was an inspector general who did not report to Washington. What the Board of War created was an inspector general who reported to the Board of War. And they appointed to this position another Thomas, uh, uh, an Irish-French officer, Thomas Conway, who became involved in all sorts of the Army politics, uh, an antagonist of Washington, and thus the Conway cabal. I mean, mm. Reminding folks, they never called it that at the time. But they tried to appoint, they did appoint, uh, with Congress's approval, uh, Conway as Inspector General. Washington wasn't having it. And so you had the first real collision here. Yeah. Uh, Washington barely being civil to the man when he reported to Valley Forge. He made two attempts to visit headquarters, and, and essentially uh, he wasn't run out of camp. He left camp in disgust and went back to politics with, to, to politic for support with the Board of War. Uh, ultimately, it failed, and, and Washington was able to uh, sustain Steuben, who showed up as a volunteer, finally get him appointed as, as Inspector General. But uh, here you had an attempt by the Board of War to take a vital function away from the Commander-in-Chief. Uh, then they moved on uh, commissary and quartermaster operations, that is, the supply of the Army, and it's pretty much an axiom in, in uh in the military, that he who controls supply controls the army. You're not going anywhere. 
without the quartermaster able to move the army, uh, see to the uh, the store proper storage of equipment and uh, scope out routes of march and all the 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 functions of a quartermaster general, uh, much less a commissary general who's got to purchase and distribute food and forage and, and clothing. Uh, without these functions under the control of the commander-in-chief, uh, are you really commander-in-chief? Mm-hmm. The Board of War set up a parallel structure. Uh, a quartermaster general who was beholden to the Board of War and a, a whole a, a quartermaster, a, a commissary operation that was completely divorced, specifically divorced from the established commissary department. Uh, this was uh, this is quite a dramatic move, but you know who's interested in the history of logistics? It, it's it's not the sexiest part of military <laughs> history, but it's pretty critical. Well, and you know, I think was I think what makes your project so interesting for folks, uh, if if they could just sort of get past the, the logistics part, because yeah. it's is is in some ways right. This is the most relatable portion of the army, I think, for a lot of people, right? Because who who hasn't you know, like you, you, you yeah. said, like that we have we have business terms for this, right? Yes, we do. Um, we do. You know, I think we've all experienced, yeah, uh, throughout our, our jobs working where, where these sort of things happen. And again, most of the people listening to this podcast uh, aren't trying to conduct a war with these sort of politics. Well, I hope they're not conducting. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, if you are, maybe check on that. Well, your point's well taken, and, and I think people do recognize mission creep by whatever yeah. term they, they see it. Uh, and, it, you know, it got even worse because uh, in, in January of, of 1778, the Board of War decided to invade Canada. <laughs> I mean, this is at a time when the Army is, is staggered at Valley Forge, but they want to organize a separate force, not under Washington. They didn't even tell Washington what they were planning. Uh, and then organize a separate army, put Lafayette in control, uh, Probably as an effort to wean Lafayette away from uh, Washington, to whom Lafayette was intensely loyal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had an almost father and son relationship developing. But they were going to invade Canada, and, and uh, Washington. I mean, he thought the idea was ridiculous uh, for every good reason. It was ridiculous. I mean, it would have in, entailed extra supplies, uh, naming extra officers, all of which con- uh, the Board of War set about trying to do. Uh, that was finally the point at which a lot of people said, wait a minute. Uh, you had Henry Lawrence as president of the Continental Congress balking. You had him explaining to other members of Congress that, in so many words, what, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe in those words, who knows? <laughs> but uh, you can read the correspondence of the period, and this is the point at which an awful lot of people, uh, certainly in the officer corps, who, who never believed this was smart, uh, Lafayette thinking, my God, they've tried to appoint me as, as a way to insult Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was it. Uh, and it began to recede. It never receded entirely, but Congress did begin to pass acts that, well, they did confirm Steuben as, as Inspector General. Uh, they, they rescinded the Board of War's authority uh, over commissary and, and quartermaster operations. Uh, Green named uh, Quartermaster General reporting to Washington. Uh, Jeremiah Wadsworth appointed commissary general in the regular army commissary department, and they canceled the invasion of, of Canada. But for several months, from let's date it from roughly November through April, uh, when they sent 
Horatio Gates back to the field, and uh, this led eventually to a, another reorganization of the Board of War that Washington could live with it. Uh, but for those for those months, though, you had November, December, January through February, four months or so, maybe five, when Washington was under serious threat, and we can only speculate on on what might have happened had uh, the cabal succeeded. And the cabal was essentially this this effort by the Board of War to administratively take the war effort away from the commander in chief. What would have happened if Gates, in effect, had ended up running the war effort? Um, it may be unfair to Gates to read his future performance in, into <laughs> what might have happened, but the future performance wasn't all that great. I mean, he soundly whipped at uh, at Camden in 1780, and uh, his his battlefield leadership in an open fight was was not not what it would have been, and in in, in essentially a defensive arrangement at, at Saratoga. Who knows? I mean, it's one of these wide-open questions, but it's a, it's a question that I think probably would have been answered badly. Yeah. Well, I can tell you at George Washington's Mount Vernon, who we would prefer to have been <laughs> well, in the Army. I think you're safe there. Yeah. I guess got to get that in to make sure my paycheck clears. Um, so this has been a great conversation, and um, we're, we're very excited for the, for the book to come out. Um, what's next, though? What's next? What's next? Well, more fellowships, more uh, books. What are um, we? The next project is going to be Benedict Arnold, mm. and I will team up with one of your first fellows, uh, James Kirby Martin. We've done a number of projects together in the past, and there was a year after he uh, turned his coat and uh, cashed in his Continental Blue for a British red coat. We had a year of command. Mm-hmm. He uh, invaded Virginia and came back and launched a very destructive raid on uh, New London, Connecticut. We want to look at Benedict Arnold's year in command as a British general. Others have sort of given it passing attention, never devoted a a thorough study to it. And I think it's pretty important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, it's intrinsically interesting, number one. I mean, just what did this guy do? But what were his motives for doing it? Mm -hmm. I mean, Benedict Arnold honestly believed when he went back to Virginia that uh, his name would be the same magic for uh, Americans there as it was when he was a Continental commander, and that he would bring Virginians back to the crown. Uh, He was rudely disappointed when that didn't happen, but uh, it was, uh, well, in an an article we've we've published recently, we call it his military epiphany. He realized, whoops, it's not going to happen. And so when he went into Connecticut several months later after his return to New York in June of 1781, he hit with a vengeance. no more Mr. Nice Guy, and, and uh, we need to look at the implications of that. And, and even after Cornwallis surrendered, uh, Arnold wanted to fight on, and he actually put a plan before the ministry when he returned to England. So there's a lot to look at there, and that'll be the next book. Oh, that sounds exciting. So, uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Joe. I appreciated it, and um, I, hope, uh, I hope the listeners find this useful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.